Hello, and welcome back to Bad Apple. I'm Riley. And I'm Helen. And today's case comes from New Zealand, but it also has some international flair. Towards the end of the 1980s and into the 90s, there was an emergence of, I guess, what you would call backpacker culture. Young people would take longer trips for less money, sometimes working at their destination. International travel became far more accessible. Australia and New Zealand accepted a lot of backpackers, particularly from European English-speaking countries, like Sweden, which is the background for today's case. My great-grandma was Swedish, so I'm that is my background. But unfortunately, Miss Girl did not carry over her citizenship because she came when she was a child. Oh. So it didn't continue down the line. So now I'll never get that sweet, sweet EU passport. Do you have to be a certain age to carry over a citizenship? I think she just, like, it just didn't, she didn't care. It just was like, oh, I'm moving to Australia. You know what I mean? New life. I don't need Europe anymore. Damn. I don't think Europe was, like, potentially doing that well at that point. Mm. But now it is. And now look. (laughs) You're not (laughs) Swedish. I No. By the letter of the law? Yeah. (laughs) I am not. In September 1988, 23-year-old Urban Hoglin and his fiancée, 21-year-old Heidi Pakkanen, left Stockholm and embarked on a trip down under. Their round trip was set to take them firstly to Australia, then over to New Zealand, and back to Sweden in May the following year. Urban, in particular, loved the outdoors. He was a keen hiker and fisherman, and this was the basis for their trip, backpacking through Australia and New Zealand, taking in all the natural scenery. When they arrived in New Zealand in December 1988, they purchased a 1976 white Subaru wagon, allowing them to cover more of the island and complete some of the most challenging hikes that New Zealand has to offer. They visited Punakaiki, Fox Glacier, and Queenstown in the South Island. In a letter back to her family in Sweden, Heidi wrote that one tramp, which is what they called hikes in the 80s, apparently. It's still what we call hikes. Oh, really? Right now. In New Zealand? Yes. Wow. It's fun. Everyone makes fun of that word. It is tramping. Funny. Yeah. Going tramping. We're going on a tramp. We don't really use hikes. Okay. We definitely say hike. Yeah. I've noticed that. <laughs> a lot of times I've said tramp and... Yeah. Tramp means a definitely a different thing here. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Who's to say? True. You know, it's not also that mm. in New Zealand. You'll mm. never know what I'm actually doing. Damn. My tramping? My tramping. One such tramp had taken the pair five days to complete and had been around 85 kilometres. The variable weather of New Zealand's South Island and needing to carry so many supplies for these lengthy hikes made them even more challenging. But Urban and Heidi were experienced hikers. In April 1989, the couple had moved to the North Island and were backpacking around the Coromandel Peninsula on the east coast, south of Auckland. Characterised by the Coromandel Range, the area is steep and rugged, covered in dense bush, The natural beauty of the peninsula attracts plenty of tourists, but the permanent population is relatively small. With only a few towns in the area, Heidi and Urban stopped in Thames on the 7th of April to get haircuts. The local hairdresser remembered them. She was taken by Heidi's looks and long blonde hair, and Urban had been too tall for her chair. She couldn't put it low enough and had to ask him to slouch to cut the top of his hair. Urban and Heidi were expected home to Sweden just a month after this, on the 7th of May, 1989. When they didn't come back on this date, their family were not immediately concerned, suspecting that the pair had just changed their plans. On the 24th of May, there was still no communication from the pair, and their family decided it was time to report them missing. 
That same day, Swedish authorities contacted Interpol, who then contacted Auckland police to inform them of the missing pair. Just two days later, the first breakthrough was made. The white Subaru wagon that the pair had been driving was found abandoned on a street in Mount Eden, but residents said it had been there for six weeks, since April 14th, a week after Urban and Heidi got their hair cut in Thames, an hour and a half drive from where the car was parked. This discovery worried police. If something had happened to the pair, investigations were already six weeks behind. Following this discovery, Auckland police established Operation Stockholm and appealed to the public for any information about the whereabouts of the pair. Soon, a farmer from the Thames area came forward to police, saying that he had found a collection of clothing, both men's and women's, that he believed belonged to the pair. His find actually dates back to mid-April, when he found a clothing tag snagged on a fence with the name Heidi Pakanan. For over a month, this name meant nothing to him, but once the media began reporting on the disappearance of the pair, he recognised the name from the tag. He then went back to the area that he found the tag, and located a number of plastic bags filled with women's clothing that police attributed to Haiti. Around the same time, a number of people came forward to report sightings of either the car or of Arban and Haiti. A man from the Thames area recalls seeing the white Subaru parked on the side of Tararu Creek Road on the 9th of April, two days after the couple had their hair cut in Thames. The car had a for-sale sign in the back window, which was likely not suspicious, as it was common for backpackers to sell their vehicles towards the end of their trip. The man pulled over to inspect the car, and noticed that it was full of belongings, including a camera and backpacks in full view, but Haiti and Urban weren't around. Would they have gone into the bush at the end of Tararu Road and attempted to complete one of the most challenging trails in the Coromandel without their backpacks? Together with the clothing evidence found by the farmer, this sighting centred the search for Urban and Haiti around an area known as Crosby's Clearing, seven kilometres along a track which began at the end of Tararu Creek Road. As the physical search honed in on Crosby's Clearing, another sighting of the white Subaru was reported. This time, a group of tourists, also from Sweden, told police that they had hitched a ride in the white Subaru on either the 9th or 10th of April. They travelled from a backpacker's lodge into Auckland. By this time, there was nothing in the car aside from a telescopic fishing rod. The driver told the group his name was Pat Kelly, so police checked the records at the backpacker's lodge for anyone who had stayed there by that name. There was a match and there was a phone number. Using the number, they hoped to find a recent address for the man, but much to their surprise, the phone number had no association with a Pat Kelly. Instead, the most recent tenant at the listed address was a man named David Tamiheri. This wasn't the first time that police had heard this name. David was well known to police. He had been a fugitive for the last three years, only recently captured in Auckland in May 1989, the same month Arabin and Heidi were reported missing. His first encounter with the law was in 1972, when he was just 19, but it was far from a misdemeanor. David was charged with the murder of 23-year-old sex worker Mary Barcham. He had hit Mary on the head with an air rifle, causing fatal injuries, but he claimed that it was an accident. Fortunately for him, the jury agreed, and David was convicted of the lesser offence of manslaughter and sentenced to two years imprisonment. After his release, he was off the police radar for around a decade, until he was arrested in 1986 and charged with the home invasion rape of a 47-year-old woman in Auckland. He broke into her house, sexually assaulted her, and threatened to kill her while she was held captive for more than six hours. He initially pled guilty, but cited that his actions were the result of substance abuse issues, saying that he had struggled with sobriety for a number of years. As a result, 
David was granted bail while he awaited his sentencing hearing. However, things took a turn when he absconded while out on bail. David fled to the Coromandel Peninsula in 1986, where he lived off the land for the next three years, which was not a huge challenge for the accomplished outdoorsman. He said that he moved around the Coromandel area during that time and used aliases to prevent recognition, a move which had proved effective because as soon as he returned to Auckland in May 1989, he was recognised and police closed in on the fugitive. He was arrested on the 24th of May for failing to comply with his bail conditions, which was just weeks before police made the link between him and the missing backpackers, so fortunately, investigators knew exactly where to find him, back in prison. When he was interviewed about Irvin and Hades disappearance, he denied ever meeting them. He did admit that he found the white Subaru, still loaded with the couple's belongings, parked on Tararu Creek Road on the 10th of April. He says that he broke into the car, planning to use it to drive back to Auckland, but he stayed in the Coromandel area for one more day, showing some backpackers around and then giving them a lift into Auckland. He then says he dumped the Subaru at Auckland Railway Station, 10 minutes from where the car was found parked in Mount Eden. In terms of the gear, David says that he pawned it once he got to Auckland, but the backpackers said that the only thing in the car when he took them to Auckland was the fishing rod, so there are a few inconsistencies in his story. With David in custody, the search for Urban and Heidi, or any evidence of their whereabouts, continued. Locals from the Coromandel area felt particularly drawn to the case, and many voluntarily assisted police officers with their search. I don't really- I never like this. Really? When, like, just everyday citizens get involved. Because it's like, why? Coromandel people are nice. Maybe Coromandel people are nice, but they're gonna fuck it up. They'll fuck it up every single time. You know what I mean? They'll accidentally contaminate some evidence. They'll find mm. something and touch it. Right. Or they'll, like, I don't know. I feel like these only, like, are when the search area is, like, outdoors and, like, very mm. big. Yeah, I know. I know. And you've got a cover area. Yeah. And those these people know the area well. They do. I can see the pros. But I can also, I'm just saying that there's cons. We're about to talk about a con. Potentially. <laughs> Potentially. One such man was Graham Pierce a Coromandel local who had become obsessed with finding out what happened to the couple. He had been helping with the search for weeks following their disappearance, only taking a break for his son's 21st birthday party. The week after that, his wife said he was like a bear with a sore head. He wouldn't stop thinking about the missing couple. What a funny saying. What a roast. <laughs> yeah. What, like, the bear's just like, oh, my head. Yeah. What is the meaning? I don't really know. I think it just means you're kind of, like, complaining a lot. <laughs> right. Graham says that something was calling him to go back to Crosby's clearing. Maybe it was just a guilt complex that he had missed the previous weekend's search. But either way, he decided to head back up the mountain. By this point, it was late July 1989. Graham climbed to the top of the ridge, to a spot called Jam Tins, where three trucks intersect. He says he was getting antsy at this stage, because it was already 3.30pm, and there was an All Blacks game on that night. It's simple being a New Zealander. Yeah. It's pretty simple over there. Head up to the top of the mountain, get back in time for the All Blacks <laughs> game. <laughs> From the top of the ridge, he headed downhill, and just 20 minutes later, followed an animal trail towards a natural mound. It was behind this that he found a distinctive jacket which had belonged to Haiti, neatly folded and placed behind the mound. After delivering this discovery to the police, Pierce led detectives back to the area where they attempted to recreate the accidental placement of the jacket in that position, but they couldn't. It was clear that someone had placed the folded jacket behind the mound on purpose, or at least it hadn't accidentally been flung from a backpack. Had Hadi left it there as a clue? 
had whoever was responsible for her disappearance accidentally left it there while reorganising her belongings, it wasn't easy to say how this evidence came about. And no one was there when Graham found it. Makes you think. No one can say exactly how it was found. That's all I'm going to say. Mm. I can just imagine this group of men, like, flinging this jacket over the mound, like, ha! Like, didn't trying, land properly. <laughs> trying to see if they could fold it up midair <laughs> and have it land folded. <laughs> That's how some men think clothes get folded, probably. I bet. (laughs) Soon after, another witness came forward. It was a search and rescue official. He told police that he had been hiking with a friend at Crosby's Clearing on the 8th of April, when they came across a couple who they asked for advice on the trails in the area. The man seemed knowledgeable about the area and offered advice. The witness described the man as being in his early 30s, part Maori, strong build, and looked like he spent a lot of time outdoors. He said the man maybe had a moustache. This description sounds similar to David, except he definitely has a moustache. A distinctive horseshoe-style moustache, to be specific. And some say that this would have stood out to the witness. Further, the witness says that the man was with a woman in her mid to late 20s, of European appearance with blonde hair. They say she looked out of place in the bush. She didn't speak at all during the encounter, so there was no indicator of any accent. Detective Inspector John Hughes who was also involved in the investigation of the Crew family murders, which we've covered before on the podcast, was determined that David was the man responsible for Urban and Hades' disappearances, and he just had to develop a theory to fit the evidence. But the trial was approaching quickly. That is also what he did in the Crew family murders. That is what they did in that case? Yeah. Same guy. Fortunately for John Hughes, history was not on David's side. A fugitive, previously convicted of manslaughter, and in custody for a violent sexual assault, was not a jury-friendly client. What didn't help the case was that the search-and-rescue official positively identified David in court as the man he had seen in Crosby's clearing on April 8th. This, along with some other circumstantial evidence, was enough for the jury to be satisfied, and in December 1990, he was found guilty of murder and the theft of the vehicle and sentenced to life imprisonment with a 10-year non-parole period. Crucial to the trial was evidence presented by three prison informants, witnesses A, B, and C, who all testified that David confessed the murder to them. Witness B claimed that David told him that the bodies would never be found and that he had cut them up. He said David was not worried as he knew the police were searching in the wrong place. Witness C, unidentified at the time, but who we now know as Roberto Conchi Harris, had much to confess. Harris was a convicted double murderer serving time in prison for killing Carol Pye and her partner, Trevor Crossley, in 1983. As a fellow inmate of David, Harris said they met in prison and claimed that David spoke of sexually abusing both of the couple before killing them. He testified that David beat Urban over the head with a lump of wood and strangled Haiti before dumping their bodies out at sea. In addition, he said David told him he had stolen Urban's watch and given it to his son. Hold on. The jury found him guilty out of basically all the evidence we talked about so far. Mm-hmm. The witness, the car, the hitchhiking, jacket found, ETC, Pat Kelly, and the three prison informants. Yes, I know. It seems a bit weak, doesn't it? Of m- the murder of two people. Yeah. Sentence. And the theft of a car, I suppose. <laughs> he did admit to that. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Seems weak, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm. Ten months after David was convicted, a discovery was made by pig hunters near Fangamata, on the southeast coast of the Coromandel Peninsula. The body of Erben Hoglin was discovered in the dense bush, 
over 70 kilometers away from where the alleged murder had taken place. Urban had met with foul play. His skeletal remains and clothing indicated that he had been stabbed multiple times, and his throat had been cut so deeply that it had left a mark on his spinal vertebrae. This discovery produced a number of inconsistencies in the police theory so far, which arguably they risked when they sentenced him before finding a body. Yes. Just a thought. Firstly, Urban was still wearing the watch that Witness C told police that David had given to his son. Secondly, the manner in which he was murdered was different. Urban's body had no evidence of blunt force trauma to the head, and he had definitely not been dismembered and thrown into the ocean. In 1994, former head detective John Hughes said during an interview that he now believed David had somehow led the couple 75 kilometers away from the Tararu Creek Road area to where Urban was found. He says he believes David killed Arban here and drove Haiti away from the area, likely back to Tararu Creek Road. What else is Detective John Hughes going to claim? Mm. John Hughes said, inconsistencies? Not let, to worry. Let me change the narrative. <laughs> yeah, it still works. Maybe you should have looked into this more, John, in the initial stages. Yeah. I mean, I guess he couldn't possibly believe that the body would have been found 75 kilometers away from where they thought the murder happened. Mm. That's like an hour drive, maybe a bit less. Apparently it was like a really um, challenging drive. Like it was an unsealed road, like very remote Yeah. to get there. If you were going to hide a body, if you want to kill someone and hide their body, apparently that's where you would do it. Okay. So maybe they should have looked. <laughs> yeah. Given that this evidence brought up a number of contradictions in the prosecution's original case, David sought leave to appeal to the New Zealand Court of Appeal in May 1992. I've now decided that it's not a New Zealand case unless the Court of Appeal make an appearance. Mm -hmm. However, this appeal was dismissed, with the court stating that there was, quote, nothing substantive in defence claims that the skeleton revealed new evidence, and that the Crown had provided, quote, convincing circumstantial proof during the original trial. Not satisfied with the result, David later sought leave to appeal to the Privy Council in 1994, but this was also denied. However, on August 25, 1995, Roberto Harris swore an affidavit saying that he had lied under oath. He explained that there was a massive cash bribe of $100,000 involved and that the police had fed him the evidence, wanting him to testify that it had been told to him by David. In the affidavit, Harris wrote, quote, the fact of the matter is, David never made any confession to me of any kind. He actually always maintained his innocence. A year later, in an interview with the late Sir Paul Holmes, Harris also said, quote, They definitely have an innocent man inside. But just a few weeks after that interview, he retracted his affidavit, claiming in a statement to police that it was written under threat from fellow prisoners. He also apologised for bringing into question the integrity and credibility of the police. Because of this, David was unable to use the statements made by Harris for a fresh appeal. A decade later, in June 2007, Harris again made a contradicting statement. In a letter to John Tamiheri, he claimed again that the evidence was all false and fabricated by police. Harris's changing story and claims of perjury made him an extremely unreliable witness, giving little value to these statements in the terms of a legal appeal. We should note John Tamiheri, who does have the last name as David because they were brothers. They're brothers. And what was John's position? John is still currently, I think, an MP, a member of parliament in New Zealand. Wow. Yeah. Two different trajectories for those siblings. Mm, nature or nurture. Mm. And that is 
classic New Zealand case. Mm. Too small. Someone's an MP. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to jail, your brother's the MP. Yeah. Having exhausted all avenues for appeal, David turned his attention towards getting parole. While he became eligible for parole in 2000, it wasn't until the 3rd of November 2010 that he was able to convince the parole board that he was significantly rehabilitated to be a manageable risk within the community. David had completed an adult sex offenders treatment program and had made a remarkable breakthrough after working with a Maori psychologist. Previously, he had been uncooperative with psychologists. He also recognised the role that alcohol and drug abuse had played in his previous offending. Interestingly, David never admitted to the murders to the parole board, which is a pretty common move, right? To admit to the murders? To your crime. To your crime, yeah. Even if perhaps you didn't commit them to get parole. Yes. Because it shows that you're able to develop like remorse and acknowledgement of your actions. But he said no. He was like, I'm not doing that. I won't be doing that. Because this man is stubborn on his innocence. Mm-hmm. He will stick to it. Police were pursuing that his release be conditional on him providing information about the whereabouts of Hades' body. But the parole board saw little utility in continuing discussions about the murders with David, saying, quote, Previous boards have had what has been described as vigorous and robust discussions with him about both his denial and where the body of one of the tourists who has yet to be discovered could be found. Mr. Tamahiri has been adamant in his denial, and we are satisfied that there is no purpose to be served in further pursuing that issue. Basically, they said, we've tried. They said, we're flogging a dead horse. Yeah. He was released on parole on the 15th of November 2010, but with significant conditions attached. He was not to consume or possess alcohol or illicit drugs again, and his location had to be monitored. Further, he was excluded from entering the Coromandel area. In 2012, he breached this condition during the filming of a new segment about the crimes. The film crew flew him over the peninsula in a helicopter, and while he didn't set foot on the land, New Zealand police applied to the parole board for a revocation of his parole. The parole board denied this, saying that while it had been a technical breach of his conditions, he had not elevated his risk within the community to the extent that warranted re-imprisonment. This was just one of the interviews and TV programs that David had participated in since his release. He has sought to establish his innocence and bring public attention to his case in order to prove that he couldn't have been responsible. He says that proving his innocence to his two sons is of particular importance. He applied to the parole board for an exception to the exclusion zone around the Coromandel area if he was on land owned by his family and, quote, accompanied at all times by approved Fano members, which means family, and given permission by his probation officer. David says that he wanted to, quote, take my sons there and walk them through the case. I want to show them it was impossible I did it. This condition was approved by the parole board. David's campaign for his innocence was recently proved worthwhile. On the 21st of April 2020, he was granted the royal prerogative of mercy by the Governor-General, Dame Patsy Reddy. This means that, despite originally failing to gain leave to appeal, his case will be re-examined by the Court of Appeal. A date has not yet been set for the appeal, despite Mercy being granted almost 18 months ago. Because some things have happened in the last 18 months. Mm. Pandemic! David is now in his late 60s, and has had health problems since his release from prison. Just six weeks after he was granted parole, he underwent a triple heart bypass and received sickness benefits as he was unable to work due to lung problems. Hopefully, the relevant authorities will prioritise this appeal while David is still around to make his case. 
because we know more than often that they tend to get around to this after someone has died. Mm, that has happened more than a couple of times. On this podcast? Mm-hmm. Since David's last appeal, some limited evidence has come to light, but has subsequently been destroyed by New Zealand police. In 2017, experienced hiker Alan Ford found a plastic bag buried under a layer of pine needles in Whangamata, just 15 kilometres from where Arban's body had been found. The bag contained three pairs of women's leggings that were visibly old. The leggings were fragile. Two pairs were black and one white. The white pair had a number of hand-sewn alterations. They had a pair of blue socks sewn onto the bottom using red shoelaces and had four red straps in the form of suspenders. The bag was in an extremely isolated area of the forest and it had been there for a long time. Mr Ford said, quote, I went to go and pull it out and it was hard to pull. It was sort of bound to the ground. Mr Ford immediately thought of Haiti and took the leggings to Fungamata Police Station on the 5th of May 2017. Mr Ford heard nothing for almost two months after his discovery and on June 26th followed up via email with a constable he had dealt with originally. The same day, the constable emailed back saying that his superior officers had no interest in the items and that they wouldn't be testing them. He also informed Mr Ford that the items would be destroyed unless he wanted them back. Not satisfied with the police response, Ford wrote back the following day, June 27th, saying that he wanted the items back and that he would be in next week to collect them. On the 7th of July, Ford went to Fungamata Police Station, only to be told that the items were no longer there. They had been destroyed a month prior, on June 9th, three weeks prior to the constable indicating that the items were still there. Police say they visually examined them and ruled them out, saying that an expert had indicated they were just over 10 years old, not old enough to have been owned by Heidi in the 1980s. Forensic scientist Dr. Peter Kropp says he was appalled at the way the evidence was handled by police. He says he's unaware of any visual test that can determine the age of clothing if there were no obvious indicators, such as labels. Dr. Kropp also said that it's procedure for police to keep samples of evidence which can be forensically investigated in the future, which didn't happen here. A report completed by an expert working closely with the case, which was obtained by New Zealand news outlet Stuff, indicates that the leggings shouldn't have been destroyed. Instead, the report advised that it would have been possible for DNA to still exist on the clothing, and that it should have been sent away for appropriate forensic testing. I am so impressed by Mr. Ford. Mm. He followed up. Yeah. He emailed the police. Yeah, he was like, what happened? Mm. And then they were like, oh, we don't care. He was like, I want it back. Yeah. I'll do it myself. Like, I care. I think he was like, I think he wanted to like take it to like Auckland. He should have just taken it to Auckland. Yeah. Just don't put any hope in those like little town police. I'm sorry. Mm. Go to the big, go to the big city. They have bigger fish to fry. Yeah. They've, they're dealing with a huge amount of things for that. They've got two police officers there. They're trying to work stuff out. Also in 2017, Roberto Harris was found guilty on eight charges of perjury relating to the evidence that he gave in David's trial, but not guilty on one count of attempting to pervert the course of justice. He was sentenced to eight years and seven months on each of the eight charges, to be served concurrently. It was after this that his interim suppression order was revoked, and his name was finally revealed to the public. Roberto Harris died one month ago at the Northlands Regional Corrections Facility, at the age of 70 of natural causes. To this day, locals from the Coromandel area who were involved in the original search are still looking for Hades' body. Graham Pierce says, quote, You don't go up there for a daily walk. 
You're always going that little bit off trail to have a little nosy just in case. I think it will always be there. I don't think the town will ever forget about this. It's almost like it's a little bit of a blight on us that we didn't find it. Lyle Bowen, a forestry worker now in his 70s, has an intimate knowledge of the area and has come across a number of dead bodies in the past. He says that people come to the Coromandel to commit suicide. He recalls the time when the Swedish couple had gone missing. Approximately two weeks after, he was near the area where Urban's body was eventually found and remembers the distinctive smell of human remains, but couldn't find anything in the dense undergrowth. Lyle is drawn back to the area, convinced there's still something to find, after an eerie encounter with a woman in the years following the disappearances. He was unlocking a gate in the forestry area when an elderly woman got out of her parked car, walked over to him and said, quote, You'll find her near the water. The mystery of what happened to Urban Hoglin and Heidi Pakanan remains, and the Coromandel rumour mill continues to speculate. Over the years, many theories have been presented, including that the mongrel mob gang were behind it, that Heidi is still living in the bush with her two children, or on Kauau Island, off the north coast of New Zealand. So the question remains, was it David? And what happened to them? Mm. Well, we know what happened to Urban to an extent, mm-hmm. but we have no idea what happened to Heidi to this day. Mm. Yeah. I don't think she's living in the bush with her two children. Yeah. That would be a bit rogue. That's, that's a bit too movie plot for me. How did she get two children? How did she end up with two children? Unborn twins. Mm. I don't think so either. No. But that is a fun rumour. Whoever started that one, they well, were creative. They were very bored in the Coromandel one day. Yeah. I honestly don't think it was David. It was a very botched everything, mm. to be honest. Like, the sentencing mm-hmm. based on what they had, which was not much. I think around that time in New Zealand, policing was very, like... What's that word? Rash. What's that word for, like... Bad. No, it's very, like, um, like vigilante. Oh, yeah. Policing in New Zealand was a bit vigilante. Mm. And, yeah, they just, like, wanted results. We, so- we see this again and again in cases around this era. Yeah. The crew family, same guy working on the, on the case. And... The Bain family? Bain family, Peter Ellis. All of these people have been, like quote-unquote, wrongly convicted of something. Yeah. Or have, like, you know, served a sentence and then been granted the prerogative of mercy. Mm. It's just, like, something was going on. Something was going on in that era. There was also, like, in Australia as well, in that era, a lot of, like, corruption in the police here Mm. as well. So maybe it was just a sign of the times. I think, like, in the messiness of the... what everything that happened following, like, in the end, it was just a couple in their early 20s who came here to travel, and Heidi was 21. Mm. She was even younger than us. Mm-hmm. And her family back in Sweden will never know what happened to her yeah. in this country so far away yeah. from their home. That's meant to be, like, or has a reputation of being, like, really safe. We should have just cancelled that after the first time this happened, because mm. this happens to tourists all the time in New Zealand for some reason. Mm. I'm Obviously that's biased, because we only talk about tourists that meet, like... That's true. Unfortunate ends in New Zealand. Statistically. That plenty of tourists enjoy New Zealand, go to New Zealand when we open up. Yeah. <laughs> but from a true crime perspective, I'm like, what is going on? Mm, very true. Anyway. We'll spare you our thoughts. Yes. If you ever find yourself in the Coromandel. As Graham Pierce says, mm. look a little further. Mm. Don't look too far. It's kind of, that's dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> if you're not experienced. Exactly. But yeah, you never know. You've been there, Helen. I have. It's very nice. Mm. Nice area. 
But yes, like rocky and like dense bush and near the ocean. Mm. So it would be a very difficult place to find a body. Mm. That's a lot of places in New Zealand. Yeah. You guys have a lot of like very kind of wild terrain. Yeah, that would be how I would put it. Wild terrain. Mm. Just like not very accommodating. I imagine like in the late 80s, they hadn't even carved out half the parts that we use mm. now and like the railings and even now like it's kind of pedestrian friendly but not very yeah it's not super accessible mm-hmm. but yeah that's the nature of the new zealand coast beautiful but perfect body hiding location unfortunately mm. Mm. yeah that's it from us thanks for listening today and join us next time bye bye <laughs>